0: Pete Weichlein of the Association of Former Members of Congress encourages listeners to take an active role in their democracy because, after all, as he says, This is, this is your role in this
1: government and this uh, experiment that's now been handed from one generation to the next for over 200 years, and, and we want to give the next generation a functioning representative
0: democracy. Stay tuned for the full episode with Pete Weichlein as he speaks about facilitating interactions between Congress and foreign parliamentarians and about restoring trust in our democracy. Hello and welcome to Public Interest Podcast with your host, Jordan Cooper, where we have been interviewing politicians, activists, advocates, and others since 2016 with the intention of ennobling public service, creating a platform for positive civil discourse, and facilitating dialogue with difference. This show is the antidote for those who are tired of hearing about what's going wrong with the world. We showcase people just like you who are working to leave the world better than they found it, and that's good news. And now a word from former President John F. Kennedy with his views on public service. Ask not what your country can do for you. Ask what you can do for your country. I'll remind you that this show is made possible by viewers like you. If you appreciate what we're doing here at Public Interest Podcast and enjoy this episode, please contribute $1 at publicinterestpodcast.com. Thanks for listening and enjoy the show. We're here today with Pete Weichlein, CEO of the Association of Former Members of Congress and former Assistant Counsel at the United States Senate. Pete, thanks so much for joining us today. How are you doing?
1: I'm doing great. Great to be with you.
0: Excellent. So the first question I'd like to pose to you is, what are you currently doing or what have you ever done to advance the public interest and why?
1: Oh, my goodness. Let's start off with the easy ones. Um, What am I currently doing? Um, We are putting programming together to connect those being represented with those doing the representing. Uh, That's a very long bumper sticker, but uh, we do so by working with current members of Congress, current congressional staff, and of course, using the wisdom and expertise of former members of Congress. Um, And they're the driving force behind all of our programming.
0: So politicians will be reaching out to their constituencies both as part of their campaign apparatus and as part of their constituent services in their legislative office. What differentiates your association from the work carried out in those two capacities? So uh, that
1: is work driven by the congressional offices. What we do uh, specifically here in Washington, D.C. is putting together uh, programming in in, an environment that encourages of uh, current members of Congress on both sides of the aisle to work together. It's a, it's a collaborative effort that we're trying to establish. Uh, most uh, of our programming right now focuses on international issues because that's a fairly easy mm-hmm. common ground to establish uh, for Republicans and Democrats. Uh, so we have what we call the Congressional Study Groups, Uh, one on Germany, one on Japan, one on Europe. uh, And as of yesterday, or day before yesterday, uh, our newest study group focused on Korea. Uh, So by by focusing on international issues where there's much easier common ground than some of the domestic issues, uh, current members of Congress on both sides of the aisle, senior congressional staff, uh, and uh, for the past year and a half also district directors uh, can work together on a bipartisan basis uh, through the association. And it's done by the former members of Congress because – you know, we we are non-advocacy, we're bipartisan, so there's, there's credibility here where we can uh, create this environment where other organizations may have a, a higher hurdle to, to climb.
0: And so with these congressional study groups, legislators both go to those foreign countries and foreign legislators come to the United States?
1: Yeah, it's it's a peer-to-peer exchange. So mm-hmm. the, uh, the theory behind all of this is that um, countries tend to communicate on the uh, executive branch level, so mm-hmm. it's the State Department and the uh, foreign ministry in Germany, for example. Mm-hmm. Uh, and what we decided many years ago, and this precedes me by quite a few years, uh, is to create a, a, a network of elected officials so the members of Congress have a, an avenue of dialogue involving their colleagues on the other side of the pond. Uh, the Germany program, being over 30 years old now, uh, was the first one where we tried this uh, peer-to-peer exchange with members of Congress going to Germany, German Bundestag members coming here to Washington, and then Capitol Hill programming in between.
0: So, of course, we're sitting here in 2018, and only two years ago or so, the Trans-Pacific Partnership was created by the Obama administration, and now, of course, it has been defenestrated by the Trump administration. Uh, I imagine, since there's a congressional study group coordinating with Japan and now Korea that this might have been a topic for discussion. During the time leading up to the passage of that legislation, and during the time leading up to the uh, the defenestration of that legislation, uh, did American congressmen interact with their kokai members in Japan for example, about the benefits of the TPP or the drawbacks of the TPP.
1: Yes, absolutely, and and um, I'm I'm sure we weren't the only organization putting programming together focused on TPP. Uh, and then for the Europeans, the the uh, the sister. Um, Legislation was TTIP, um, where through us members of Congress could exchange, uh, very specifically with their colleagues in other parliaments, how legislation would affect their districts, their constituents, their voters. Um, one thing that we've discovered over the decades that we've been establishing this kind of back and forth is that there's there's a commonality between elected officials from from two countries. There's there's a common experience and a common ground. Uh, when you're a democratically elected representative of, in our case, 750,000 people. Mm-hmm. Uh, so there's there's a common language and a common understanding of the challenges that come with representing so many people and so many different opinions, um, and bringing, let's say, the, uh, Japanese Diet members together with their U.S. counterparts, uh, they understand when they hear, this is how it plays out in my district, this is these are the concerns I'm hearing from my voters. This is what the hometown newspaper is, is uh, the to- editorial board is saying about this. Um, so we think because we're, we're dealing with elected officials, uh, bringing them together and giving them the opportunity to really understand how a specific issue or potential trade pact plays out on the other side of the Atlantic or the other side of the uh, Pacific – it's just a very powerful additional piece of information. We, we certainly don't have all the answers, mm-hmm. um, but I think for, for a legislator to be able to analyze the impact, this is a really interesting additional component to the discussion.
0: Do you find a lot of the Congressional Study Group members to be, to, in, on the American side to be members of the Foreign Affairs or Foreign Relations Committees?
1: So there's a uh, there's a wide uh, range of, of the type of members who join our study groups and everything we do is bipartisan. Mm-hmm. Um, we're not at the point where we say if you're a Republican you have to bring a Democratic date to the dance <laughs> yeah. or vice versa. <laughs> but it, it really, you know, if I crunched the numbers we'd be fairly close to a
0: 50-50 split. On partisanship.
1: On, on partisanship. So uh, almost as many Democrats as Republicans who, who participate in our programming and then our leadership is is always a, de, a bipartisan uh, co-chairmanship arrangement. So for example with our study group on Germany uh, Congressman Ted Deutsch of Florida is partnering with Congressman Charlie Dent of Pennsylvania and they're the bipartisan co-leaders of our group on Germany. Um, but it's not just the members who are active on foreign policy issues. Mm-hmm. It's almost Um, those members not as much are active with us, and here's why. Through their work on the committees, they already have that exposure and Mm -hmm. they already have that opportunity. So we often find that members who are not on those committees but still have that interest Mm -hmm. through us can educate themselves a little
0: bit. So you're saying that uh, individual members who do sit on foreign affairs committees Sometimes can ask foreign legislators to come and testify in front of their committee. An American congressman might testify in front of foreign legislators.
1: Um, you know, I don't, I don't know about testifying, and that's certainly not something we would put together. But but more it's, informal. It's an informal. Um, uh, network of colleagues, uh, an informal network of peers. Uh, I, I love the phrase peer-to-peer because that's really what it is.
0: What, is it, what are some of the discussions? I don't know if you've been privy to them at, at, at events that you've organized, but what do these discussions look like? What when, for, With the concrete example of the TPP or perhaps the Paris Climate Accord with, with the German peers or the British peers? Uh, what what are those discussions looking like? Okay, I'm representing Manchester, I'm representing uh, Frankfurt, and now I'm representing Kansas, and he's representing Maine. And we're all talking about... How do those conversations yeah. look
1: like? So one thing we we really enjoy and 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 it's it's almost we pride ourselves in this is we try to have uh, as as little time spent on prepared remarks as possible, uh-huh. uh, and as much time as possible on on a true back and forth and a true dialogue, uh-huh. um, and and. It, it, to create an informal setting where that conversation can kind of flow. That's the best kind of setting one can have. Now, clearly, when we take a uh, uh, delegation of current members of Congress to Berlin, Mm -hmm. a lot of the schedule will be taken up with official meetings and state dinners and Chancellor Merkel will host us, that kind of thing. But whenever possible, we try to create these informal gatherings and opportunities for members for American members to just come together with their German counterparts. Sometimes it's a work and breakfast. Sometimes it's a two hour bus ride to get to um, a factory they're about to tour. Um, Sometimes it's a, an afternoon uh, two hour window that we've reserved for just a round table discussion where, where we basically close the door, leave the room and let them, let them have a back and forth. Um, And, The power in all that is that you very quickly get to kind of the essence of what's driving the the discussion and the issues. Mm -hmm. Um, If you spend 90 minutes having to listen to Professor Dr. So-and-so enlightening (laughs) us about uh, environmental policy, um, a lot of of those nuggets that really kind of drive the conversation get lost.
0: So you speak about the importance of of fostering informal relationships among the foreign legislators with their American counterparts. Uh, Many academics and members of the media have reflected, and members, uh, current and former members of Congress, have reflected that over the past few decades, the amount of uh, relationships with those on the opposing uh, political party has diminished. So whereas you might have had the infamous Tip O'Neill and Ronald Reagan friendship in the 1980s, you might have had Republicans and Democrats serving in the 70s and 80s and even early 90s, uh, forge lasting personal relationships. Many will say in the 21st century, you've seen that uh, amount of bipartisan personal friendships sharply decline. Uh, could you comment on on the 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 importance of or the presence, the existence of pers- informal personal relationships on Capitol Hill? in juxtaposition to the informal personal relationships you're seeming to try to create elsewhere and is it even easier to create informal relationships with legislators in foreign countries than it is here domestically.
1: Yeah, you're, you're, you're really hitting on such an important um, issue and challenge. And uh, there are a couple of thoughts here. First of all, with the work we're doing with current members of Congress, uh, particularly when we have an opportunity to put a congressional delegation together and take them to Berlin and take them to Tokyo and, and uh, the other countries we work with, um, one of the uh, side effects of all of that, uh, and, and, and it's an important side effect, is through travel, Current members of Congress, often this is their first opportunity to really get to know on a personal level colleagues from the other side of the aisle. Um, this is especially true if if uh, these members aren't serving on the same committee. Um, You know, at the committee level, uh, even though not as much as it used to be, but there's still an opportunity to uh, work with members from the other party and get to know them a little bit on a personal level. But once once you take take away the the, uh, you know, a state's caucus or the committee work. Um, there really isn't that much opportunity anymore for these members to, to get to know each other personally um, uh, as as colleagues. Um, so through our travel, um, not just because you're spending a couple of hours on an airplane together, but also because you're uh, first of all you're an ambassador on behalf of the United States. So there's there's that common ground and that bonding experience. And then secondly, you know you're experiencing another country. You're 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 meeting. Uh, uh, Bundestag members or members of the Japanese Diet. Uh, these are all experiences that, that bring them together a little bit more and, and and build a foundation for working together on things that have absolutely nothing to do with Germany or Japan or anything like that. And and since we're the former members' association. That's probably the number one concern that we hear from our own membership members who served, like you said, on the Tip O'Neill, um, uh, and you don't even have to go that far back when when it was possible uh, to really build lasting relationships and friendships and get to know your colleagues uh, and and do so on on, on a uh, across the political aisle level. Um, I think one big piece of that is was possible because members lived here in the in the DC area they they moved their families here and uh you know it's it's pretty hard to yell at somebody uh, in in the house chamber on a Tuesday when your kids are at the same swim meet Wednesday night mm-hmm. um or you know your neighbors in in addition to being colleagues on Capitol Hill and and now and and this is nothing against the current members or current leadership it's just the way our political process has evolved um The way the calendar is and 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 the legislative week is members uh tend to leave dc uh, on a thursday night after the last vote don't get back here until monday night or tuesday morning and when they're back in their districts uh their district staff schedules them 24 7. um so there really isn't that opportunity anymore to spend some some time together and get to know each other and um you know, one of, one of the fundamental ingredients of bipartisanship is trust, and how, how do you establish trust if you really don't know the people you're dealing with and working with? Um, so, as I said, that's the, your question is incredibly important because it's probably the, the biggest challenge to what current members are experiencing compared to
0: um, what a lot of my former members experienced when they, they were on Capitol Hill. Uh, Before we return to the international topic, you mentioned trust, and earlier you mentioned that one of the foremost responsibilities of the Association of Former Members of Congress is to connect citizens to the representative government. Now of course, uh, it seems as though, and at least the media would have us believe, and some elected officials would have us believe, that there is less trust in government now than there has been before. I've seen polls taken of the American public in the 1950s that showed a great deal of public approval of and trust in the United States Congress. Of course, many pollsters will agree that in the 21st century, in 2018, there's a greatly diminished sense of trust and support for the U.S. Congress. Can you speak about perhaps... The extent to which the relationships that you're attempting to foster among the different members and with the former members in any way can repair that trust chasm that has been developing over the last few decades.
1: Yeah, you're, you're again, um, you're absolutely right. Uh, over the years, uh, the Pew poll being one of them, there there are many different ways of. Graphing how um, uh, trust in in government, uh, particularly Congress as an institution, has just been eroded, um, and and fewer and fewer people view Washington as a protect, productive path toward solution. Uh, I think more and more people think of watching as an obstacle rather than a path towards solutions. And and uh, being a former staff and myself and having worked on Capitol Hill, it, it's it's a, a sad development for those of us who revere Congress as an institution and 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 see the 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 power of a functioning Congress for good. Um, so one of the things we do is. Uh, I think there's an underlying um uh dehumanizing factor to our current political uh discourse. Uh it's it's very easy to uh Paint somebody from the other side, from, uh, from the other party, as as an enemy r- rather than an op- opponent, uh, and this tribalism that's now uh, become part of our political discourse. Uh, both when you turn on C-SPAN, but also you know as you're looking at town hall meetings or or um, uh, you know even even neighbors having having a disagreement on on a political issue, uh, it's it's much more. Uh, um, uh, partisan, and it's, it's much more uh, driven by ideology than we've ever seen before. So one of the things we're trying to do is um, reconnecting people, particularly um, this, this next generation of, of American leaders, um, with uh, bipartisan teams of current members of Congress as well as former members of Congress, um, and, and have a dialogue that is a person-to-person exchange. Uh, an example of that is our Congress to Campus program. <clears throat> we go to about... 30 uh, universities a year where we send a bipartisan team of former members to spend up to three days on campus. And this bipartisan team will go into as many different settings as we can uh, create working in, uh, uh, in partnership with the university that's hosting us. So they'll start their day and, you know, a freshman uh, introduction to government class with 400 students, and then the next class is going to be uh, young men and women working on their uh, thesis to to get their uh, doctorate in American history or something like that. And and, uh, civic groups, uh, whenever possible, we'll take our former member team that's on campus and see if we can find a high school that we can take them to Mm -hmm. as part of the program. Um, Maybe some civic organizations like the VFW. Um, And all this is to um, have an opportunity for the public to see a a partisan debate on the issues, because our former members, even though they're now former members, still are political beings and they still have uh, political points of views and they're still partisan. But it's not hyperpartisan and it's productive. It's a, a uh, respectful debate on the issues. So we'll send them into a classroom, and it's not, uh, you know, how a bill becomes law. But it's let's talk about environmental policy. Let's have our our Republican former member and our Democratic former member have a real back and forth on uh, the environment and and uh, the concerns many have about um, global warming, and give the students. A, an opportunity to see a respectful, productive debate on the issue. That's really a, a fact-driven debate. And also give the students an opportunity to engage with these former members and, and, and be part of that discussion as well. And, and, again, the overarching theme is uh, let's let's find a way to combat this dehumanizing that's been going on in our political discourse.
0: You speak about uh, having, fostering respectful debate on the issues, especially on these college campus events. Uh, can, if we were to look at the media and see that they are for-profit enterprises, uh, we'll quick, quickly discern that... Uh, Uh, more newspapers will sell with divisiveness and a focus on differences. We'll find that more uh, viewership will be attracted to a television station if you focus on everything that's different between the two candidates. And when you find someone running in a competitive general, which, by the way, is becoming less common as we find that through gerrymandering uh, primaries are where the real competition is often happening around the country. You find that everyone is trying to differentiate themselves and focus on their differences. The question is, have you found in these respectful debates on the issues on campuses that there are surprisingly more commonalities between a Democrat and a Republican addressing the students than you might otherwise be led to believe through popular media coverage?
1: Yeah, uh, a resounding yes, and, and you're absolutely right. Um Media literacy, I think, is is one of the main issues that we as a society need to uh, come to grips with and address. Um, I I have three um, daughters; uh, two of them are teenagers. Uh, they get all their information from their from their phone um, uh, with different apps and 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 uh, different lists that they subscribe to. And um, I think we need to teach this next generation how to. Um, plow through all the information that's available to them and and be a discerning uh, consumer of information and and really understand better how easily um, thinking can be manipulated um, if if you're talking in bumper stickers and and glaring headlines. And again, it gets back to engaging, um, in our case, college students, but we also do a lot at the high school level, even as young as the middle school level, And we're about to roll out programming that hopefully will also now engage the parents because I think we already lost a whole generation of Americans that haven't had real civic education and and don't have a real understanding of their role uh, in, in our representative democracy, um, by, by engaging them on the issues and giving them an opportunity to kind of think and talk things through, that's another teaching tool that, that I think we need to employ. That, um, a, an engaged citizen, a responsible citizen, um, and this is completely bipartisan. Where, wherever that citizen comes out at the end of that analysis is fine with me. But but anything we can do to to have people really understand their role in our government and their responsibility in in um, uh, educating themselves. Uh, when when I am ready to buy a new car, I have all these websites where I can educate myself about different models and different features and so forth. Uh, when it comes to electing, maybe not at the presidential level, but your state delegate or your your member of Congress. People often just, if they bother to vote, walk into the voting booth and and they'll see the D or the R and that's good enough without really having a clear understanding of what that candidate stands for. So um, I, I know it's it's uh, uh, drops in a bucket, but I think every drop is helpful in in, in just um, reengaging folks and letting them know this is this is your role in this government. And this uh, experiment that's now been handed from one generation to the next for over 200 years, and, and we want to give the next generation a functioning
0: representative democracy. So, Pete, on a topic of perception uh, of government, perceptions of those who differ from us, whose perspectives differ from us, I'd like to uh, return for a moment to, uh, the top, to the discussion with the congressional study groups when we we're discussing interaction with foreign legislators. There is a perception of America abroad that has been evolving over time. There was a particular perception under the George W. Bush administration. uh, First, when uh, September 11th happened, there was a great outpouring of sympathy around the world. And then through Afghanistan and Iraq, uh, foreign support for American foreign policy diminished. With Barack Obama and the awarding of a Nobel Peace Prize with Donald Trump, uh, there were discussions in the British House of Lords and Commons, or at least the House of Commons, about not even allowing him to come to Great Britain uh, for a presidential visit. So, uh, And also within this context, uh, you have studied abroad. You have lived in Germany. You have obtained a German law degree. So with your perspective for having studied abroad and lived in another country looking back at American politics, I'd like to ask you how... Uh, others' perception of Americans, America's democracy has evolved over time uh, within the context of how uh, you've said we perhaps have lost a whole generation of Americans who've been engaged in uh, critical analytical thinking about their democracy. So how has the perception of America abroad evolved over time?
1: Yeah. Yeah. Um, I- the uh, f- current members of the German Bundestag, Japanese Dai and all all these partners uh, that I have the opportunity to work with, continue to look at America as as needing to be the leading voice and uh, uh, the the leading implementer of um, freedom of Western democracy of um, of, of the. Issues that have kept um, Europe and America connected ever since the end of World War Two, um, and and that's. Uh, you say I'd, I'd have a German law degree, which is absolutely true. I'll do you one better. I'm, I'm actually a dual citizen of Germany in the United States, was born and raised in Germany.
0: Do you vote in both
1: countries? I, I do not. I only vote here in the States. Um, uh, but a- having been born and raised in, in Munich, Germany in, in the 70s and the 80s, um, I very vividly remember how um, – the Germans were uh, in, engaged in a very um, deep debate about stationing U.S. missiles and stationing U.S. troops in Western Germany and, and what that meant for uh, West Germany vis-a-vis East Germany and, and how Germany was uh, uh, the buffer zone um, towards the East and the Russians – but always within the sense that America must lead in order for Europe and and Germany to be safe. And um, that vision of America continues today, but I think there's grave concern when uh, our German allies or the French or even the Brits uh, look across the Atlantic and see how currently we're having a a very difficult internal debate about who we are and what we stand for um, and and also have, unfortunately, right now politically – a bit of a, uh, a uh, quagmire um, and, and are limiting ourselves and our ability to really move the country forward. So there's great concern. Um, uh, but I think um, everyone we interact with continues to look at the United States as the most important ally and the most important partner that, that their country can have.
0: So as we approach the end of this podcast episode, Pete, I'd like to ask you uh, about your work. Uh, Perhaps you might imagine yourself speaking to an assembly of former members of Congress. Uh, I'd like to ask you to speak to these former members about why it is that you believe this work of facilitating bipartisanship, especially when that doesn't seem to be the priority of many current members, the work of connecting citizens to representative government to advocating for better functioning of government to create uh, peer-to-peer exchanges with other governments why that is so important why it is that you are spending your life and your time and your effort trying to Uh, achieve these ends, if you would speak to these current and former members of of Congress assembled here virtually before you, what would you say to them about your motivations and what would you say to them about what you hope will be the outcome and the legacy of the work that you are here doing?
1: Well, I I appreciate that you're giving me the easiest audience I could possibly speak to because I'd be preaching to the choir. Um, Our former members, when, when they become former members, so a lot of the uh, ch- uh, uh, challenges that come with being a current member, whether it's uh, working within uh, leadership in order to move up in leadership, uh, the the constant fundraising, the the uh, hyperpartisan uh, primary process, all of those things fall by the wayside when they when they become former members of Congress, and it's almost. Uh, liberating because it, it taps right back into the public servant DNA that brought them to Congress in the first place uh, so through us they can continue the public service uh, and and be a voice for uh, on behalf of Congress as an institution and and we come at it not as uh, f- from a point of view back when uh, you know I served it was so much better and we were so much smarter because that's not the uh, that's not the truth um, we come at and from a, as former members, um, we understand the challenges that that come with this position, and we understand, like no other group, um, uh, what what uh, challenges exist to to uh, serve, to represent your uh, 750 diverse constituents, to to work within leadership. Um, so we want to be a positive advocate on behalf of Congress. So this this virtual audience you're giving me, um, they're very much engaged with the association. We're we are a 501c3, so even though we're chartered by Congress, we don't receive any funding from Congress. No taxpayer mo- dollars are <clears throat> earmarked for anything we do. Um, all, all, everything we do is grant-driven and, and our own fundraising. And, and all my former members who are engaged with us do so on a pro bono basis. I, I never pay a fee or an honorarium to any of my former members. So for for 2017, um, our most recent figures are that we had almost 7,000 hours donated to us pro bono uh, by former members of Congress from both sides of the aisle, um, and and that includes getting you know on, on an airplane to do democracy building work overseas to be an election monitor, uh, or you know our Congress to campus program. Not all the universities we work with are in Hawaii, um, so sometimes uh, in the Midst of winter, we'll send former members to Erie, Pennsylvania, mm-hmm. uh, and and they volunteer their time. Um, those who are not fully retired but are in their uh, third um, professional ch- uh, chapter in life have to take off from the law firm or the university or wherever they're working in order to participate in our programs. And as I said, 2017 added up to about 7,000 hours that these former members donated to us in order to uh, continue their public service. And that's, that's really the, the main message. There's, um, uh, there's a wealth of experience and institutional knowledge that's inherent in our membership that can be put to such great use and, and, and can be used to inspire the next generation of America's leaders, uh, can be used for, for real hands-on civic education to, to really talk um, uh, about the political process and can also be used to spotlight um, the, the uh, limitations that current members have to, to work under. Um, so I, I, the, the virtual audience you gave me is a pretty captive one, and I appreciate it.
0: <laughs> and that has been P. Weikline, the CEO of the Association of Former Members of Congress and a former Assistant Counsel of the United States Senate, He speaks about the importance of uh, restoring trust through peer-to-peer dialogue and by facilitating respectful debate on the issues, encouraging media literacy, and uh, head-on addressing uh, the dehumanizing, uh, ideologically driven discourse that has been characteristic of uh, political uh, interactions over the last few decades by... by, uh, addressing those issues by fostering that trust and building that dialogue he seeks to advance the public interest and restore uh public uh trust in and support uh, uh, reverence of uh the u.s congress um as it once was and as it hopefully will be again pete i like to thank you for joining us today thank you appreciate it this has been another episode of public interest podcast with your host jordan cooper where we interview politicians, activists, advocates, and others who seek to improve the state of the world. I'll remind you to subscribe on publicinterestpodcast.com, iTunes, or your favorite podcast listening platform. And please join the conversation by calling 240-630-0380 or emailing engage at publicinterestpodcast.com. Thanks for listening.